0: Last week we went through the the portion of the gospel that accounts um, Jesus' death. His, uh, His life was no doubt extraordinary, but even more so his death, the way that he died, was an amazing feat due to the fact that he laid it down so willingly and yet undeservedly. He didn't have to die in our place. He didn't have to give up his life. What well, we've talked about over and over in the verse in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it said, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I think that's amazing because we don't see rulers like that in this world. We see people that want to lord it over those who are under them. We don't see someone willing to be a, to be a servant leader. And so, Jesus showing the perfect example of what it looks like to be a servant leader. But as we wrapped up our Bible study last week, Jesus had fought the good fight. He had won the race. But to the world, they saw a defeated Savior. They saw a man that had died rather than lived. He, he wasn't able to continue his kingdom because he, he gave up his life. And who starts a kingdom by dying? But Jesus Christ, when he laid down his life, that's how he set up the kingdom. He paid for our sins by His death and punishment. And as we left last week, basically, when He breathed His last breath on the cross, what happened? Well, Mark account, Mark's account highlights the fact that the veil was torn that was between the Holy of Holies and that which any common man could be. The Only the high priest who could go in there once a year. So as that veil was torn, what it said was that the veil was torn from top to bottom. And as I think about that, I'm looking at these walls next to me, and they're 24 feet tall, or excuse me, 10 feet tall. That'd be quite tall. They're 10 feet tall. And we had to climb up ladders and down ladders all day. But for the the veil that was in the temple, if you just look at that one wall, you multiply it times six, and it was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide, and it was as thick as a man's hand. So that veil was no small piece of cloth to tear. And if you think about it, if you've ever tried to do like Hulk Hogan used to do and take your shirt and rip it, even to make rags, even if you weren't doing Hulk Hogan and being all angry and, you know, he would rip that shirt. Of course, I think he had like a plastic shirt that was easier to tear. But even to tear a shirt is just such a thin piece of material, and yet it's so hard to tear. So a piece of cloth that's sewn and woven to the point where it's the thickness of a hand says that it was more than just merely men that would rip it. And the fact that it was ripped from top to bottom shows us that it was God that ripped it. He tore it down so He would divide the middle wall of separation. No longer do we need to go to a priest to to speak with the Lord Himself, but we have our own high priest in Jesus Christ who lives forever. And He even spends His time now at the right hand of the Father praying for you and I in our daily struggles. Where we don't know how to pray, He's praying for us continually. If you've ever tried to pray for more than five minutes, you'd know that that's quite a feat for someone to pray continually for anyone, and yet that's what Jesus does. But um, what I wanted to point out was when that veil was torn, God made it so that you and I could be in fellowship, and that was the purpose of his death, to, to bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. So... As he has died and he's given up all his privileges and, and laid down his life for you and I, we see that now his body has to be dealt with. And so in verse 42 of Mark chapter 15, it says, When evening had come, which this is the evening of Jesus' death, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So what we see there is we see this man who comes seemingly out of nowhere. And he um, was a prominent council member. That means that he was actually on the council that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was uh, the council that just the day before, or the night before, had unjustly, put Jesus to trial for religious reasons. They were basically trying to tell whether or not he was a blasphemer and worthy of death in their eyes. And so they tried him at night, which if you know anything about Jewish culture and history, they were never supposed to have a trial at night. They were never supposed to have it last minute. They were supposed to make sure that everybody could be there. But they had it right then so they could try him swiftly and later we find out that they were trying him because they were envious of him. Not because they had any tra- uh, any uh, charges against him, but because they were envious of his following. They were envious of what he was doing, and they were losing their own followers. Now, because it was the day before the Sabbath, that is when many people would actually, it was called the preparation day. And if we kind of do this in our culture, if, if you're in a family that, that all they do is, is go to church and 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 spend time with believers on that day. Most of the time you'll spend your Saturday trying to make sure you got everything that you want to get done, done. But in their culture, it wasn't just like a cultural thing. It was a mandate. Basically, they were not allowed to do anything on, on the Sabbath because if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, or in Genesis, God created basically from the first to the sixth day and then on the seventh day, He rested. And so when God started the nation of Israel, He told them in the law, He said, you, you will work six days, and on the seventh day you'll rest, because God did. He doesn't ever even give any reason other than that, other than God set that example, and so you'll be my people. You will reflect me to the other nations, so I want you to be like me. I want you to work for six days. You've got to work, otherwise you can't eat, right? And then on the seventh day, I want you to rest. But that was the law. That wasn't like, hey, you can or you can't, like we have now. It's, you got to do this. This is how it works. And so because of that, they would be preparing for the day where they wouldn't be able to do any work. And the day would start, not like us, we see the day starting when the sun rises. But for them, the day starts at dusk right now. When the sun goes down and it gets dark out, you can only see, I forget how many, they, they would judge the exact time when day would start, or the day would start when you could see so many stars in the sky because it was dark enough. And so... Um, One of the customs between the Jews and the Romans is that anytime there was a crucifixion, they would always take the bodies down off the crosses before sundown because that's when the day would begin. And as a general rule, the bodies of those who were crucified in Roman culture, they would leave them on the cross as an example, as a warning to anybody that would want to rebel against them. They would say, hey, you want to break the law, this is what it's going to cost you in Rome, in, in our country, in our civilization. Um, So they would leave them up there as kind of a testimony. You don't want to mess with us. Uh, But because they made concessions for where they had Jewish people, they would take them down off the cross. Now, many times, unfortunately, because of that, um, well, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, in order to make sure that they could take the bodies down, they would, uh, if the person that was being crucified was still alive, then they would break their legs because their legs could keep them pushed up enough to where they could breathe while they were on the cross. Now, Jesus died before they would need to do that, and so they never had to break his legs, which actually fulfilled prophecy, said that none of his bones would be broken. But the other side is is that um, they would take them down so that um, basically it wouldn't be unclean, I guess. But in this case, Jesus had passed away, and then Joseph of Arimathea, the council member, goes up to Pilate and he says, hey, I want the body of Jesus. I want to take his body, and I'm going to to take care of it. I'm going to make sure it's taken care of. Well, normally they would leave these prisoners up on the cross, and they would just basically rot there. So someone coming along and asking for it, he would have to ask the governor. And when he would ask Pilate this, basically everyone would know that he approached Pontius Pilate because he's a leader. And so for him to be a prominent council member in the Sanhedrin, to approach this governor and say, hey, I want the body of Jesus, would be kind of stepping out there in faith, because to do that would basically say, I disagree with what the council I'm involved in made a mockery trial for. They would say, it's basically saying, I don't, I don't trust in the fact that, that uh, you guys tried him right, and so I want to treat this man as well as I can, even though he's already passed. And so it says there that he was going to, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, yeah, so he went to Pilate himself and got the body of Jesus. Now this was no easy thing to do, like I said, because it would call his reputation a call. And many times people look at Joseph of Arimathea and they go, well, he, I don't know if he was really a believer because he didn't really live out his faith. Nobody even knew about him until he showed up after Jesus' death. Was he ever able ever really to, to accomplish anything for the Lord? But what I think is cool is that... Be, he was used in a way that, that nobody else could be. Because he had that prominence, he had an ear with Pontius Pilate. But anyway, verse 44. Pilate, in response, marveled that Jesus was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. Like I said, they would typically, they'd be on the cross for a long time before they would pass. It was most, one of the most excruciating ways to die because it took so long. And then verse 45 says, So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And then he bought fine linen, he took him down, he wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So Joseph takes a step of faith, he gets Jesus' body. But now what? what? What was the purpose? What do you do with someone's body? You know, I, I will often think about that in our culture. We wouldn't know what to do, right? I mean, we have companies that take care of that for us because it's a messy business. It's awkward, you know. But what can Joseph do? The damage is done, right? Jesus is already dead. What possible way could Joseph serve his master now? Well, a pastor by the name of David Guzik that I read his uh, writing sometimes, he made a comment on this passage. He said, Joseph did not serve Jesus in many ways. But he did serve him in ways that no one else did or could. It was not possible for Peter, James, John, or even many of the women who served Jesus to provide a tomb, but Joseph could, and he did. We must serve God in whatever way that we can. And I thought that was quite interesting, because Peter, James, and John didn't have a tomb that they had hewn out of stone. It was very costly in those days to do that. It wasn't something that everybody had. And so Joseph, being a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, was wealthy, and he used his wealth to serve the Lord. He already had a tomb. Now whose tomb was this that he was given to Jesus? Well, I, I guess that he didn't have like a whole bunch of them, like an apartment complex of tombs. He just had the one. It was for himself. It was for his family. And so to give that up, it cost him something. And so he said, you know what? I love Jesus, and I didn't serve him in this life, but I can give him a, a proper burial. And so he worships him in this way. Jesus has not called you and I to be Peter, to be Paul, or even to be Joseph. He, has not even called us to, he hasn't called me to be you, and he hasn't called you to be me. What he has called us to do is to serve him uniquely with the gifts and the talents that he has given us. He has for each one of us a specific purpose and a use, like tools in a carpenter's belt. And for each one of us, if we aren't careful, we can spend our whole lives trying to do what we're not made to do. I've done that many times. Tried to fit myself as a square peg into a round hole and it just doesn't work. It's uncomfortable. You're not able to accomplish anything. Instead of doing that, why don't we just take a look at what we already have right now and ask the Lord, what would you have me do with what you've given me, what I already have? Perhaps you'll be surprised at what God can do I think it's interesting one boy in the feeding of 5000 people in the gospel accounts that we studied just the, within the last year he found out that the lunch that his mom gave him for the day was given to him as part of God's plan to feed 10 to 15000 people isn't that amazing you know can you imagine the little boy that had the loaves and the fishes he's just going out to where he was going every day and his mom goes hey Johnny don't forget your lunch you're going to get hungry and so she took You know, in our modern day vernacular, a brown paper sack or a Transformers lunchbox and stuffed in a few things that they would have to eat. Hey, here's some granola bars, except they had loaves and fishes. And she sent him out, right? And he's just sitting there, la, la, la. You know, he's got his snacks. And then what happens? They got to feed 5,000 people. They go out throughout the crowd. Hey, who's got any food? Little boy goes, I do. I'll share. And he doesn't realize it, but he's going to share with ten to 15,000 people. Now, oftentimes we go, all I got is a sack lunch. What am I gonna do with a sack lunch? I hated my sack lunch when I was going to school. Bologna and chips, and by the time the end of the day came around, the bologna and the chips, they both tasted the same. Because they were in that pack, paper sack, It didn't breathe, right? But that bologna sandwich and chips fed many. And I think it's amazing, oftentimes what we do is we look at what we have and we go, that guy's doing this, or that gal can do this. Look at all the stuff that they're able to do. What can I do? I don't have anything to offer. I guarantee that you do. God's already equipped you to do what He's called you to do. You just got to be open to how He might use you. It may not be sitting up here teaching the Bible. It may not be building walls. It might be bringing sandwiches. It might be showing up and helping with some light fixtures. It might just be showing up and and smiling and somebody was having a bad day and they needed encouraged. That's how God builds the kingdom of God. It may not be the gift of healing. You may not have that. I don't have that. I wish I did. You know, But God uses many things that we often think that's a common thing. God can't use it.
1: And I like that
0: because I'm a common guy. Nobody in my whole high school class would have said, hey, that guy's going to be an engineer or that guy's going to be a pastor. They'd have been like, that guy's kind of a jerk. And it was true. But God chooses to use the things of this world that the, the world would never choose to use in order to build his kingdom. So I'm thankful for that because I have a place in that plan. So verse 47, And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So time was getting short. They followed Joseph of Arimathea. They found out where he was going to be buried. And they had to get home before dark, before the street light came on. But all they wanted to know was where they could find Jesus the day after the Sabbath, when they could actually get to him. So now, verse 1, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, let me pose this question. Why were they going to his grave? And let me pose this question. And we all do this, why do we go to the grave of our loved ones and friends who have passed away? It's a good question, right? They're not there. Why do we go there? Well, I have a couple of things that I wrote down, and I'm sure you could think of other reasons. Number one, typically, it's the last place that we remember seeing that person. It's the last place that we remember just thinking about them. We want to see them again. That's the reality, right? They're gone. We, want, we have, we're like, it, there's unfinished business, we feel like. It was, it's always too soon, right? Number two, to remind us of the reality that still seems so unreal. Are they really not around anymore? This really just happened. You know, and when you go to that site, you're like, you see the, the, the words and the stone, and you see, you know, sometimes you even see where the grass quite hasn't started growing yet, and you go, this thing really happened. And it's just that reminder. Number three, to remember and, then, and to not forget the memories because we got to hold on to what we still do have, the memories. And at the same time, there's this longing, almost a built-in hope that God's placed in us, that maybe, just maybe, it's not over yet. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has written eternity on our hearts. We know that there's something beyond these this time of life. It's like, this can't be it. And that's a God-given desire. That's a God-given instinct. It's like, this can't be it. And I think that it's interesting because even in their state, they, they go to his grave. They, they want to be where he's at, even though he's already passed. And I think that's amazing because they didn't have any hope in their own minds. They, they saw him die. They, they saw his body carried to this tomb and that they still go back. They, they want to be there. They want to experience that fellowship that they had while he was still alive. They just want to hold on to that little thread that they still have. So this was the same for those who had been loved by Jesus, right? They still had this connection. It was like a family member had passed. They were in the same spot. They missed him. It's like pains that... I I think of it like this. It's like the pains that people get when they have a limb removed. And I know that's kind of gory, but our bodies are dependent upon each limb that God's given us, right? We become used to having them there. And I used to watch the show MASH and... There was one episode, and it was kind of one of the more serious ones, but a man had come in. He was a football player. He needed his leg. He was a kicker. And when he came in, he had shrapnel wounds in his leg. And those shrapnel wounds had been so bad that they were saying, we might have to remove it. And the man said, if you're going to have to remove it, just let me die because I, I can't live without my leg is what he was saying. So what happened is he went into surgery. They tried. They tried. They couldn't save his leg, and they amputated it. Because if they had kept the leg, that basically what was going on there would have killed him. And so um, anyway, the, when he got out of surgery, he was laying in his bed and the doctors came up and they approached him. They wanted to make sure he was doing all right. And as he came to, he looked at the doctors, and he goes, you saved my leg. And I thought, well, he's just thinking that because he said, otherwise, just let me die. No, he could feel it. He said, I could still feel it, it's there. And they go, we, we did all we could. We couldn't. We had to remove it. You were going to die. And he said, but it's still there. I can feel it. And then he lifted the sheet and he looked and it was gone. But there's something that happens in our brains because they've been connected to those limbs for so long that when something like that happens, traumatic to the body, it's almost as if it's still there and you can feel it. That's the same thing that happens when we lose a loved one, right? You can almost feel that they're there tangibly. It just doesn't seem real. So anyway, these ladies knowing this, excuse me, these ladies knowing that he had passed away, they still go to be with Jesus. They still long for that fellowship. So verse three, they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. Now we have an advantage here, right? We can, obviously we can look at them being worried Who's gonna open the stone? What are we gonna do? And we have this advantage. We know that Jesus rose again. We already know that reading the story. Uh, But they didn't know that. They were walking up on this unknown situation. What they came to do was anoint his body so it wouldn't stink so bad, so that people did come to visit him, then he could be properly, you know, kind of buried and prepared, and and then people could come and visit but we might be tempted to marvel at the fact that they had already forgotten so many important details one of which is that he told them hey i'm going to be crucified i'm going to die but then i'm going to rise again i won't be held down by death the resurrection's going to happen i'm going to be the first one but i'm going to come back to life but they had forgotten this perhaps cuz they were so they were in mourning right it seems like when you mourn someone's loss your your brain's just kind of you kind of lose focus on what, what matters. You just, you, all you want to do is think about that person, what, what loss happened. But their main purpose for going was to go to Jesus. The first opportunity that they had, even though they knew he wouldn't be there, they still wanted to be there. And let me tell you that if you make going to Jesus in every circumstance your first priority, it will always be rewarding. No matter how bad the circumstances, no matter how busy your life gets, in the midst of all that, if you will seek Jesus first in everything that you do, you'll be rewarded. You will always find what you need for everything else that's going on. So they sought out to find Jesus. And entering the tomb, verse 5, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples, I like this, and Peter. Remember, Peter had denied him. Go tell the disciples, make sure you tell Peter, he's going to need the encouragement, that he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you, so they went out quickly and they fled from the tomb and they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Um, so they had prepared and yet they were afraid. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had prepared myself to go to a tomb where I knew someone was going to be deceased, I, I would be a little bit afraid of that more so than him not being there. I, I don't like going to... To those kind of places, it's 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 a part of life, but it's still kind of awkward, right? It's like you walk in and then you you know there's gonna be they're there, but they're not there, and it's kind of a weird situation. But they get there and they're afraid, and they walk in the tomb to see Jesus prepared for the worst, assuming what they could expect. And instead of seeing death and decay, they saw a young man. I think it's funny that it's a young man, not even an old man, but it's a young man. Mark writes that it was a young man and the other gospel accounts they confirm that it was in fact an angel sent to explain what was going on to the woman who the women who had come this angel explains to them don't be afraid he's not here he is risen and they come prepared for the worst but they come away only to find out that they were mistaken and that Jesus had risen the greek tense here implies that the message was not that he got better and got up from his sickbed. There are many skeptics that kind of look at this and they go, well, he didn't completely die on the cross. They put him in the tomb and then he got better. Well, I don't know much about medical stuff, but I know that if you take someone that's sick and you put them in a moist, damp, dark place, they're not going to get better. They're going to get worse. The infection's going to grow. It's not going to be good. It's unsanitary. And so... But the Greek tense there implies that, in fact, an act of God of miraculous proportions that accomplished the raising up of Jesus from the dead. That's what the word means there. He is risen implies that he was miraculously risen. He was brought literally back to life. But notice they arrived expecting death and they leave, having been instructed not only that he's not there, he's risen, but then, now that they know that, the instruction is go, go and tell the disciples what you've seen and heard. So these women are the very first to be commissioned to proclaim the good news. They're the first evangelists that Jesus' resurrection had taken place. Sin and death could not defeat him. And just as he told his disciples that he would, he was going before them to go to Galilee. He told them in one of the instances, he says, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be turned over to sinners. I'm going to be turned over to evil men. They're going to put me to death, but don't worry because I'll rise on the third day and then I'm going to go before you to Galilee because he knew he was, he knew they would go there. He knew that they were going to go back to fishing because it's all they ever knew before they knew Jesus. He said, but don't worry, I'll meet you there. I'll be there before you even get there. So let me ask you, do you live like these ladies did before they found the empty grave? Do you spend? Um, do you come to church? Do you come to the Lord? Do you spend time with Him? As it, do you, but do you live as if God is dead and the only reason to open your Bible is to hear about the past? i got to admit, I went to cheer, church for years thinking about, you know, well, I need to go and learn about God. I need to go learn about Jesus. As if it was like, we need to study history. We need to study about the presidents. You know, because there's good stories and you need to learn stuff. And that's true. But it's not just about learning about the past. It's learning about what God wants to do now based on what he's already said. Um, so do you come to church as if God is dead and the only reason to open your Bible is to hear about the past? Or do you approach Jesus in his word and while singing songs in worship and remember what he has said and trust that he will do just as he promised still today? These ladies were devoted to Jesus, but they did not expect him to follow through on his promise. But notice that God showed the truth to them, even though they weren't expecting anything on the, out of the ordinary. My prayer is, is that God would awaken us to the truths that we aren't expecting each day. You know, I think oftentimes I, I wake up in the morning and I go, God's going to do that. He's going to make the sunrise. He's going to make nightfall. And I don't look expecting him to show me something new. Sometimes even in my Bible reading, I'll get up and I'll read it. I'm not really looking for him to show me something. I'm just reading it to get through what I always do. And what God wants to do is he wants to sit down and fellowship with us in the morning or whenever your time is. I like the morning just because nothing else has happened. No distractions have come yet. No discouragement has come yet. I can start off with my refuel in the morning. But I think it's interesting that these women weren't expecting anything out of the ordinary. And I think oftentimes we read our Bibles not expecting anything out of the ordinary. We're just doing it. But at the same time, I wouldn't discourage you from that because God meets us in that even. Even when we don't expect Jesus to be risen and we show up every day, notice that these ladies, they got there not expecting anything and they got one of the biggest miracles ever. They found out that Jesus rose from the dead. So God reveals things to us sometimes even when we're not looking for it. I think that's good news. Um, May God awaken us to these truths even if we aren't expecting them, but hopefully we do spend time expecting them. May he show us new things that we had not known before about him so that we can be sent, just as these ladies were, to go and tell. But I want you to notice this too. He doesn't tell them to go and tell people that have never heard of Jesus. He tells them, he tells her to go and tell the disciples, the people that already believed, the ones that had walking with Jesus, had walking, the ones that had walked with Jesus. He says, go and tell the disciples. They need encouraged. So let me tell you, if you're you're in the Word and you're encouraged by something, don't keep your mouth shut. Share it with somebody else. Maybe somebody that doesn't read the Bible. Maybe somebody that does. Maybe somebody that just looks down. Hey, you know what God showed me this morning? Because it's a living, breathing testament to the fact that God isn't dead. He's not just some arche, not some archeological fact. He's a person, and he's willing to meet us each day. And I don't know about you guys, but when somebody tells me God showed them something, I'm always like, I want, I want him to show me something. It spurs me on to growth, to seek him. And the other thing is, is we are also at the same time given the good news so that we can go and share it with people that don't believe. We can give them the testimony of what we have seen, what we have experienced. I think it's interesting, oftentimes we think that what we have to do is go and give some sort of defense biblically and and memorize Scripture and, and go through this whole gambit where we have to be theologians to share our faith. But what these women were told to do is go and tell what you have seen go and tell what you've experienced i once was lost but I'm, now i'm found you know my life used to look like this and god's redeemed me he saved me from my sins so i guess for me just this week the biggest encouraging part about this is that these men and women had no hope jesus had passed away he had been crucified their savior the one who they staked all their life and time investment on What I think is cool is even though they sought him not having any hope, they walked away being encouraged. And so maybe that could be some encouragement for us. But...